Hello, everybody, and welcome to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT consultancy company talk about IT industry-related topics and things that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinda Candola and Will Dalton. How are you guys? I'm good, thank you. Yep, good, thanks. Bit early, but... (laughs) Yeah, we should say we're recording this really early in the morning, so sorry if we all sound a little bit hungover. So, news, guys. Um, So, Will, did you want to go first with your news this week? Yeah, sure. So, recent article in Medium.com or the Medium app, what is your fancy on? AirPods, Apple AirPods Pro. JK, probably one for you. Definitely. Maybe you've experienced this, I don't know. Uh, I can feel your blood pressure rising already, JD. (laughs) I'm triggered. I'm definitely triggered. (laughs) Yeah, press the trigger, the Apple trigger button. There goes our Apple sponsorship. Pro was launched at the end of... 2019, I think. Original AirPods were very successful. Love them or not. AirPods Pro had, as I understand it, very good noise cancelling, which was rendered useless or severely degraded by subsequent firmware updates. My favourite subject. Firmware updates seem to happen whether you like it or not these days. Uh, Remember when you, you could have a choice of whether you wanted to update your software or not? Now they just sort of launch it out which they then tried to fix with other updates that made it worse. Then they rolled back the update and broke things further, et cetera, et cetera. You get the picture. This was back in November, and it's still ongoing. There have been subsequent hardware replacements on the AirPod Pros with imbalanced firmware between the left <laughs> left and right ear. Oh, man, you'd think you'd at least... <laughs> you think, so this reminds you of when they... Do you remember that they throttled the older iPhones? So they've just settled a lawsuit for $500 million on that one. And here they go again on the uh, on the pros. Um, it's a bit different here, but the but the update aren't updates meant to make a better a product better, not worse? Isn't that the idea? Idea. So the thinking's going is scenario one: the hardware, especially the battery, can't handle the demand from the noise cancelling it's placing on it, so it's throttling it. The firmware's throttling it. Scenario two is a genuine engineering problem, but it's been going on for eight months or so with countless updates, some actually just messing it up. And scenario three, there's genuine problems with people reacting and handling of noise cancelling. You know, I mean, some people do actually react badly to noise cancelling because it was so successful at blocking the noise, so danger, uh, so, you know, headaches and dizziness. However, Sony have got noise cancelling headphones. There's a little app, you know, with a slider for noise cancelling effectiveness that you can do left or right. So maybe a bit of conspiracy theorems going on in those scenarios. However, it's an interesting article. We need to talk about AirPod Pros by Joseph Curran. Could you uh, pop that out on the Twitter? Yeah, we'll do, yeah. Available on medium.com and it's about 10, minute, 10 minutes read. So the issue is that that the the firmware is broken, the noise cancelling, is that, sorry, I, I kind of missed exactly what the... Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and they've been trying to fix it. So is it, have they broken it on purpose, I think, is is the thing, you know, going back to what they did with the older iPhones, have they broken it on purpose? Because the actual physical hardware can't take it. So uh, in particular, the battery, you know, that the noise cancelling is placing on the demand, the demand that it's placing on the battery, so... Is there a new version out? Is that why there's the conspiracy over them deliberately bricking them or something? There's been countless versions and countless firmware updates. So, and it's still ongoing. So, yeah, that's that's where these scenarios, that's where these sort of conspiracy theorems are coming in. Wow. Okay. Given that uh, that we love Apple, and particularly I love Apple, uh, <laughs> you're going to love my new story. <laughs> so, 
my new story is i mean I, I couldn't not cover this when i saw it i just think it's absolutely mind-blowing so epic epic games and apple have uh, and google actually i should mention google in there as well are having a bit of a spat at the moment and it's just it, it absolutely blows my mind that we live in a world where this is happening so what's happened is epic games who make Fortnite, which is these days more of a cultural phenomenon than it is a video game um it's it was in the most successful movie of all time avengers endgame very prominently it was used by Disney to to announce the fact that one of their most popular characters was going to reappear in the next Star Wars movie. They didn't do it in a movie, they did it in Fortnite. So it's become absolutely massive these days and very, very popular with kids and young people. Epic have introduced a payment platform into their own app. And this is a big no-no, right? So within Fortnite, you can buy these things called V-Bucks, which are a virtual currency that you use to purchase items within the game. And Apple and Google on their respective stores take a cut of every transaction that goes through that platform in theory. So Apple take 30%. I think Google take a bit less. Epic, interestingly, on their own platform, the Epic Games store take 12%. So they take a smaller margin, basically, of every transaction. And what um, what Epic did was they got pissed off with this and they said, OK, Apple, we're not going to give you 30% anymore. What we're going to do is build our own store into Fortnite itself, thereby bypassing all of the controls that your platform puts on it and we're going to give people a discount for shopping directly in the app and apple and google predictably threw all their toys out the pram and they took fortnite off both of their platforms and then epic <laughs> this is where it gets really good released a video called 1980 fortnite which is a stylized sort of cartoon video taking the piss out of a commercial that Apple themselves put out back in the 80s, I think it was, where they cast themselves as plucky freedom fighters fighting against IBM's tyrannical stranglehold on the market. And they they did a sort of pastiche of this commercial and cast themselves, Epic Games, as a bunch of plucky freedom fighters fighting against Apple with the hashtag free Fortnite being their sort of major hook for it. And this is two companies, one of whom is valued at $17 billion, Epic Games, one of whom is valued at $2 trillion, Apple, having a fight with each other over who gets to keep more and more and more of the millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds that they make from children. <laughs> and it kind of makes me, you know, one guy on the internet, I, I can't remember where I saw it. I think it was YouTube comments on a um, Jim Sterling video, who's a games journalist who did quite a good video on it. Uh, one guy described it as two rich guys throwing water balloons at each other when the whole world is dying of thirst. Does seem inappropriate timing, doesn't it? Oh my God. It's these two massive, incredibly wealthy, biblically wealthy companies having a fight with each other about who gets to keep more of the, or three, I suppose, biblically wealthy companies, having a fight with each other about who gets to keep more and more of the millions and millions of dollars and trying to enlist an army of children and young people who like the game, in the case of Epic anyway, to, to sort of fight the power and imagine that they're in some kind of rebel alliance or something against Apple and Google, when really all it is is them trying to line their own pockets. <laughs> And my, my reaction to the whole thing is just, oh, my God, fuck all of these guys. Like, I just can't. Yeah, yeah. This feels like I'm living in in some kind of Blade Runner corporate dystopia cyberpunk thing where these massive corporations rule our lives and are just too busy fighting with each other. And it's just horrendous. It's just a horrendous story. And I can't believe I live in a world where it's a real thing. It's not just Apple. It's more epic than anything else, I think, uh, mm. being really bad. for Because they clearly planned it. That's the thing that was so sort of disingenuous about all of it. They've clearly got this whole insurgency sort of campaign that they're trying to kick off with all these these people who play the game pre-prepped because it came out like the next day. So they knew 
they were deliberately poking the bear. They knew that Apple were going to take this uh, this app down, and they prepared this whole campaign of lawsuits and and advertising and everything else to try and get the common man, if you like, who's playing the game uh, on their side to try and fight another megacorp just so they could increase their profit margins. Anyway, there you go. So that's my new story. <laughs> so so fuck Epic and fuck Apple. That's what I think. Fuck Google as well. Or? Yeah. Also, yeah. Fuck Google equally. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> Why not? And, and and also, I guess, fuck us as well, because we'll never get to work with any of them. Um, but no, no, I mean... Not anymore. All three of those companies do some good stuff. But, in you know, in this particular case, I just don't think it's justified. I just think this is a, this is a horrible story. Anyway, Jatinder, your news story. Okay, so my news story isn't much better, but it is definitely weird in comparison to what you two have just talked about. My story is about a holy man in India. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> there's this chap in India. India is famous for lots of holy men. Um, there's quite a few in the country and internationally, and they have huge followings. Given the population of people in India, it's easy for them to, to kind of pull in 10 million followers quite easily. So it's it's a big thing for Indians, I guess. However, there's a particular one who is from Gujarat, which is uh, northwest of India. I'm going to try and pronounce his name, but it's going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, Shri Purushottam Priyadashji is his actual name, but he's also known as P. Swami. I'm fairly certain he did a better job of pronouncing that name than we would have done. (laughs) (laughs) P. Swami sounds like a rap name. Yeah. It's like India's P. Diddy. So uh, the story is that he has his own, what they call an ashram, so uh, where people can come and visit him. And when anybody goes to see like a Hindu holy man, they tend to get given a food offering in return. So uh, what they call prasad. So the strange thing about this is that this priest tended to give that prasad via his mouth. So he'd, he'd pick up this food offering I put it in his mouth for a few seconds, lean forward, and the the follower would then come and with cupped hands, put their hands underneath his chin, and that food would then drop into their hands, and they then accept that as a blessing, which they then will eat themselves. So you can probably guess where this is going. He managed to get COVID, and uh, he has passed away, uh, which obviously has left potentially hundreds of thousands of people um, that might now have COVID as a consequence. That is horrible. And yeah, I guess our, our, <laughs> our thoughts go out to anybody affected by that because that's horrendous. I know a lot of people have been very badly affected, so we shouldn't, shouldn't laugh. But my God, what a, like, what a weird way. Is this, is this common, this whole passing things from within your body to your followers type thing? Or I'm not really an expert, but not that I've heard of. It's just, it's such a strange thing that it, that it was allowed to carry on like uh, during this current pandemic. Like India has like about 3 million cases, I guess, uh, at the moment. So maybe they could have come up with a different mechanism. I was thinking the followers would, were taking the offering with their mouth, but luckily it just dropped into their hand. <laughs> <and> then, <laughs> I mean, it could have been worse, I suppose. There's a reason why he used his mouth. For, for, his, for his delivery mechanism. It might be part of the USP because there's so many of these that it, they need to do something different to each other, yeah. Here, have this offering and COVID. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. No, we, should, we shouldn't joke about COVID. COVID is a horrible thing that's, that's killing lots of people. But yeah, it is amazing that that was allowed to carry on. My gosh. 
Well, I think his following, his following is quite big because the Indian Prime Minister has expressed grief over it. Rather than condemning it, uh, he, he said it's, uh, it's a big loss. So I'm guessing he was important uh, from like a, a national perspective. Or the Indian Prime Minister. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, distribution of COVID through various different religious mechanisms. I think that South Korea, it was happened as well, wasn't it? In that there were certain sects or religious groups where they transmitted the virus because they all got together to, to celebrate or worship or... Or pray. There have been quite a lot of examples of people getting together to, to try and... Um pray to, to prevent themselves from getting the virus. And then because they were in a mass gathering situation, they ended up getting it, which is very sad, obviously. I think similarly in America, a few of the first original spikes were from churches and stuff as well, where there were gatherings. So is the, is the sort of IT angle to this that this guy was on YouTube? Because I know a lot of these guys have absolutely enormous followings, don't they? I guess he's probably got multiple channels because it looks like it was a, a kind of big following that he had. And he, he was one of the, the big, big boys. Okay, so main topic time, guys. We need to we need to move it along a little bit. Today's main topic is the it's the I well, sorry the IT it's the it's the school scandal that's going on in the UK this week. So we don't normally do a news topic as our main topic for this podcast, but this week it's so perfect for the kind of company that we are and what we're what we're talking about because it's all about the use of algorithms and whether or not it was an appropriate thing to do in the case of awarding A level results to, to to students in the UK this year. So for anybody who is unfamiliar with this. Story, Story. What happened was the government in the UK needed to solve a problem because all the exams had to be cancelled because of COVID-19, which makes perfect sense. So they reached out to an organisation called Ofqual, who are responsible for the inspection of exam results and making sure they're fair and all that kind of good stuff in the UK. And what they said was, we need a way of moderating and creating a set of grades for A-level results. Now, A-levels are the final exams that you take before you go to university in the UK. So they're the, the way you secure your university place. And Ofqual were charged with creating an algorithm which would allow a... Uh, a sensible looking set of grades that were equivalent to previous years to be created. It's actually fascinating trying to do some research into this because the algorithm itself is very complex. So there's a very interesting article by Jenny Tennyson, which I'm going to put out on the episode description in the Twitter, which explains in minute detail how this how this algorithm works. So she's the vice president of the Open Data Institute, and she breaks it down in uh, in a great deal of detail. But the, the bottom line really was that it, it took nine steps in total. I won't go through them all here, but it was quite complex. And what it sought to do was equate the predicted grades that teachers were giving for students in the UK uh, to previous years, previous cohorts that were going through and make sure that it was sort of a fair and balanced assessment of, of those students' performance. The result, when they actually ran the algorithm in, in anger and then published the exam results out to children and their families who were looking for those kids to get into A-levels, uh, into, A into universities, was that in about 40% of cases, predicted grades were downgraded. So the, the teacher's predictions that were given out that the children knew they were getting effectively, they, you know, they knew what their predicted grades were, I think. And in 40% of cases, they were downgraded. And in some cases, they were downgraded by a very significant amount. So it puts the university place in, in jeopardy. If you were had an offer that was sort of A, B, C or something, and you got CDE, you're not going to get that university place. So it caused a national outcry. And the government has now had to do a U-turn. They've had to scrap the algorithm completely and they've had to move to going back to teachers predicted grades the issue with that is that 
teachers predicted grades are much higher than previous years grades were because humans tend to err on the side uh, on the side of overestimating slightly and they've ended up with a an inflated set of grades now which opens up a whole smorgasbord of other questions so what will next year's students do if this year's students defer for example because they'll have an unfair advantage and so on and so forth so it's the research that i've done seems to indicate it's the least worst option but it's definitely caused a significant ripples let's put it that way so this algorithm they got it very wrong let's be honest it's definitely not something that that went well for them doing that but i thought it'd be interesting for us to just talk through as as it specialists where what whether the use of an algorithm is is appropriate in this case i think it definitely is but i know a lot of people particularly people who aren't in it who i've spoken to who've said why on earth were they using an algorithm in the first place how dare they entrust our kids futures to a computer you know all this kind of stuff but also how they could have got this so wrong and there's a few bits that i've pulled up through the research but i think it'd just be interesting to talk through with you guys i don't know whether you guys saw the story at all or what your initial thoughts on it were yeah, I saw the story. How, how, could, you, how could you not? Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting is the UK is quite a devolved administration and education is devolved to each of the four nations across it. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of rippled through the nations and we've each fucked it up. But it sounds like we've fucked it up in exactly the same ways. I don't know if we've learned lessons from one another. So Scotland fucked it. Scotland were first, weren't they? Yeah, so Scotland went first and then they they reverted to um, predicted grades. And then England, I think, were maybe next. Uh, and then Wales have, have just said, we're going to scrap the whole thing. When we talk about it's the UK, I mean, this particular example you're talking about is, is the English Department of Education. That's correct. Yes, I should have said that. That's not necessarily saying that the other nations didn't fuck it up because they did. I think the interesting thing about this all goes back to that. Uh, we talked about a book called Hello World, How to Be Human in the Age of the Machine by ha- Hannah Fry. And she addresses this spot on in that it covers the interesting human behavior towards algorithms in that they're, they're treated with some reverence and source of authority, but that if they go wrong or give the wrong answer or give the answer that you don't want to hear, that there's this massive outcry. And it's much worse than if the human gave the wrong answer, even if the impact was was much bigger. And it's that continual power struggle between us and them and the question of the balance of power between human and algorithm and who or what should have the final say is something that she addresses in our in, in the book. Because I don't think and I don't, and I don't know. So <laughs> heavy caveat, I don't know. But the algorithm is just going to give the answer based off the data that you give it. And what was missing with all of this for me was that human element, whereas the algorithm should have been a, an input into the final decision, not the final decision itself. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because when I was looking through the, uh, the research, there were some pretty obvious failings. So the first one, which is interesting for us to talk about, is the Q&A process. Within IT projects, obviously, we get quite heavily involved in, in all of that, even though most of the time we're designing systems and doing the change on them and the business analysis and all that kind of thing. So Ofqual refused an offer. They refused to publish the algorithm before the results were issued, number one. And they refused an offer of help from the Royal Statistical Society, who offered to come in and help them QA it. So provide a third party assess- expert assessment of whether or not this algorithm would produce incorrect results. And it's worth saying that when they looked at the overall results and what the algorithm had chucked out, it looked broadly right because it came out with a result which was comparable to that of the 2019 cohort and the two years previous to that. So the amount of A's that were awarded, the amount of B's, C's, D's, whatever, it was 
an appropriate mix in terms of the, the overall numbers. So it looked right. But the problem that they had was that the algorithm was extremely punishing on certain groups, particularly disadvantaged groups and actually heavily privileged groups as well, because the algorithm wasn't even applied on very small class sizes. So if you had a very small class size, such as in a very expensive private school, for example, where four or five children were taking, say, Mandarin or something like that because it wasn't a particularly popular subject. I don't know, by the way, if Mandarin is a popular subject. So apologies if, if it's, you know, if you get like massive classes and it's bursting at the seams. I studied it. Did you? What did you get? I'm interested. <laughs> well, I, I, the algorithm gave me a U. <laughs> <laughs> So, so in your case, it was uh, it was accurate then, yeah. Uh, so, so it wasn't even applied. So, so kids who were in classes of of smaller than um, I think it was seven students. I've got the numbers in my notes somewhere. I'll, mm. I'll pull them out in a sec. They were not even subject to the algorithm. So they just got their teachers' predicted grades. And as I said a minute ago, the predicted grades were uniformly higher, pretty much. So those they got a massive spike in grades uh, in in those smaller class sizes and where you were between i think it was 7 and 15 people in a class the algorithm was only partially applied so it didn't take 7 of i think it was 7 of the steps of the 9 were not taken in that case and then once you got over that threshold all 9 of the steps were taken by the algorithm so right from the very beginning very small class sizes as you would tend to find in very posh schools were given a huge advantage and also kids who were because private schools yeah in private schools yeah or, or just you know incredibly highly performing state schools where mm. with unpopular subjects right so it could mm -hmm, also happen mm -hmm. there yeah yeah and the other thing that was interesting was that kids who were very highly performing but in very poorly performing institutions were very heavily penalized so kids who were in a, a failing school or a school that hadn't been inspected well because the algorithm took the performance of that school over the last three oh, sorry previous cohorts of children in those schools over the last three years into account. If in the last three years, the classes that had gone before you had performed poorly on average, even if you were a superstar who was predicted to get A's when everyone else was predicted to get C's, you'd get moderated down a couple of grades and you'd get a C. Whereas really, you should be moderated up in those kind of in that kind exactly, of context, exactly. Because you're battling against the institution as well. Yeah. So although teachers were encouraged to rank their students, and that person would probably have been towards the top of the class ranking or whatever, because of the way the algorithm rated that, and because weightings given by a human being are inherently all over the place, they're not particularly precise, and because they were they were comparing moderated results from previous years, where they'd run an algorithm over those as well to make sure that the appropriate numbers of grades were being delivered it just ended up being a complete mess <laughs> it was just all over the show so there were loads of, of examples of people who had been very clearly disadvantaged and very unfairly treated and it blew up into a national news story because obviously everyone's going to be sympathetic to a bunch of children who've been screwed over yeah it was amazing really that it, that it, it happened it's trans it's lack of transparency isn't it with the algorithm yeah you know if you said this is what the algorithm, like you've just explained, and it's the first time I've heard that. It's very interesting. Yeah. But it treats like people, like we're idiots, that we're, we're not going to understand. Here's this magical algorithm that's going to sort it out. Okay, well, how does it work? And, oh, no, 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 you, we're, we're not going to tell you that. Ultimately, it's, it'll be about probability, won't it? it probably you're going to get, it'll be a percentage probability on different grades. But it would be interesting to see the full spectrum of that probability. Plus, these kind of algorithms, they're completely unregulated at the moment completely unregulated and closed book. So 
it makes it impossible not to feel a bit outraged. Do you know what I mean? When you don't get the decision that you think you should get. If you if there was transparency and it said transparency and, and you saw, well, it's worked it out because of this, you would look at that and you'd make a more informed decision. But because when it's all black box and invisible, you're automatically going to be outraged. And that's one of the problems with, with where we are with algorithms. I think algorithms are a good thing. They're a good assist. But we need to have that. We need to have the legislation. We need to have the transparency and the visibility on them to, to start making informed decisions with humans in the mix. Surprised that they they didn't think about these things and try to do something different given the impact that GCSEs can have on a, a young person's A-levels. Life choices and, oh, sorry, yeah, A-levels will have on their future life choices and possible options in terms of where they go from there. It might be make or break with somebody feeling like they might, may not be able to go into further education. They might not be a true academic uh, or actually that now limits me i now have to go and do a diploma rather than a degree or something like that it's such a critical point for people of that age in their life well it's interesting because the uh, universities have now got a terrible problem where they've offered a bunch of people places on the basis of the old set of grades and now that they've reverted to teachers predicted grades instead they've now got a whole bunch of other students who'd previously been moderated out of being able to attend that institution going, well, I've now got the right grade. So you're going to give me my place that you originally offered me. And the, the government's saying, well, you'll have to, and we'll just give you some more money. But there's only so much capacity in universities. I think something that's interesting, I mean, Jatinda, you're, you're a specialist in business analysis. It strikes me that they must have got the use cases wrong here. They must have got the requirements and the use cases wrong for this in the first place. It feels very narrow analysis, as if they didn't think of all of the different factors that would impact these things. I guess one of the, the key things I've just been thinking about as you've been speaking is that although there wasn't any proper Q&A, did they at least get the academic institutes, universities together to try to input into any of this stuff uh, or, or have some kind of say in how, these, how the algorithm is put together uh, and what their opinion is? I may be doing them a disservice here, but nothing that I found when I was researching this pointed to them doing that. I think Ofqual did their own internal testing, and I think that was all they did as far as I can tell. Yeah. It doesn't look from any of the stuff that I've read like they did do that. And I know for a fact that they turned down an offer of help before the algorithm, sorry, before the results of the algorithm were published to inspect the algorithm and the, and the results and check them for, for bias and stuff. I think another thing that's interesting, again, we'll, we'll probably do an episode on the Hannah Fry book at some point, but this whole idea of if you train an algorithm with a biased data set, it becomes biased, but not because algorithms are rubbish. I think that's mm -hmm. another important point for us to draw out mm -hmm. because it just, I think the reason this went wrong for me is because of humans, not because of the involvement of an algorithm. It's because the algorithm wasn't built or tested properly. I think that honestly, that seems to be what it is for me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't transparent yeah. enough as Will said. It's like that kind of end-to-end -end delivery of any product or IT delivery that it's only as good as the consumer. So when we're putting together some requirements, uh, the architect and the engineer needs to accept them. So there needs to be a QA by the, the appropriate parties that are going to consume that information. So same with this. So if majority of A-level students tend to go on to higher education, you'd expect them to bring in the institute that governs all of the universities or, 
somebody at that tier to check whether it's acceptable for, from their perspective in terms of entry criteria and whether they'd work with it. Or kind of proof of concept or experiment with a sample set of students. Or Yeah, so experiment-led design struck me as something we would do in this yeah. in this yeah. case you know you 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 take a few sample sets and run them through and keep iterating and keep working at it and get that third party checking done is this really going to screw up everyone's lives yes great let's go with it yeah it's it's bizarre isn't it <laughs> The repercussions are going to be quite big. So um, as I said, higher, higher grades for this year than any other year will be unfair on later cohorts who are coming through. So if someone defers from this year and takes a gap year next year, they're going to smash it because they've got yeah. these much higher grades that are a result of humans making the predictions. Humans are prone to human error. They're prone to unconscious bias. They're prone to favoritism, frankly. I and mean, I'm not accusing any teachers of it directly, but it's a natural thing that yeah, you can't help it sometimes. But also they understand the students, don't they? And they see things that an algorithm wouldn't see. Yes. You know, if you if a student has potential, but maybe the measurements that they're using to, to look at the performance of that child gives them is will be low, but the teacher sees the potential in that child or sees the, the environment in which that child is working in or living in and takes that into account. Yeah. It's that human element that was missing from this whole process i mean, I mean to, to be honest listening it sounds like there were a whole catalog <laughs> catalog of errors it's the it's the common sense isn't it it's that they didn't have the common yeah. the common sense check um for someone to really look at this and go hang on is there anything we've really missed here is there anyone who's going to be really unfairly impacted i mean just to tie it up as well because we're, we're running out of time but um i think the um, the other thing that's significant is that not only is it unfair on other schools so between different institutions because if you've got one school that was performing very highly but is now slipping backwards they will get very very good results because previously they were performing well and a school that's really improved has got a new head teacher or something and has had a massive turnaround in the last year or so that won't be reflected at all they'll be slammed by by this so again that's why they've potentially fixed that issue by going back to the predicted grades and then the final thing is that university sixth form colleges and even employers, if you're not going to university, might just end up taking this year's results with a pinch of salt mm. and just saying, well, you know, we know they're all wrong now because they're based on teachers' predictions. So you they're can't biased. compare them to any other year because they're, they're much higher. You know, they're 40 odd percent higher if you believe the algorithm moderating 40 percent of grades down because they were too high. They're much, much higher. They're very inflated over what they should have been. Although these are a these are a passport into a university, aren't they? Or into a job? Or in or into a job? No, that's a fair point. If it's into a job, I was, I was just thinking, if it's a passport into a university, when you apply for work, they usually just look at your university degree and grade rather than rolling back to A levels. Yeah, true. But for those who aren't going to university, who are leaving higher education at eighteen, it's horrendous, isn't it? Anyway, interesting. But I think the the answer is really is just design your IT projects properly. This is a classic example of what happens if you don't apply the appropriate methodologies and the appropriate rigor to developing an IT system. And the result is that it dents it dents everyone's confidence. I wonder if they left it too late as well. Uh, like there's a the particular time gap that they still publish the results this year on the same dates that they would every year. But that kind of indecisiveness of whether they were going to do their exams or not may have impacted that, that they had a set period of time within which they needed to, to get an algorithm, a mechanism to, to make this assessment. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm just yeah trying to be too polite. Should have employed DDK. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's definitely the, the main takeaway from this, I feel. We are available for work. <laughs> 
Well, we're a bit busy at the moment, but yeah, we will be soon. Oh yeah, maybe not now. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So we're going to move on to the recommendations section of the show. Jatinda, do you want to give us your recommendation? Yeah, happy to do that. So my recommendation, like my news story, isn't very IT related, but I think it's still on trend. I have recently bought a bike lock. It's a Kryptonite Crypto Lock Mini 7. I think... If anybody's after a bike lock, this is the one to buy. It's not bad in terms of price. It's a six out of 10 security rating, which doesn't sound like much, but that's quite good. They will guarantee theft protection up to a thousand pounds for your bike. Performance steel is used, it's hardened as well. It comes with a uh, extension cable as well. It can uh, twist around your wheel. But yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's a flex frame U-bracket, so it fits nicely onto your frame. So just once again, it's the Kryptonite CryptoLock Mini 7 New U. <laughs> I think you might have to give me the, the proper name of that so I can put it in the episode description. But yeah, what a mouthful. Is Kryptonite in it? I hope so, because there's this little kind of bar on the end that it feels as if there must be something in that bar, because that's the heavy part of it with the actual lock mechanism. Is Kryptonite heavy? Who knows? <laughs> in my head it is anyway <laughs> I guess it's heavy if you're Superman on that point it is only 1.13 kilograms kryptonite is light wow there you go can you control it via an app unfortunately not oh shame <laughs> maybe there's potential what would the app do it just have a big button that would say nickable or not nickable you could unlock it you could unlock it as you as you're approaching your bike yeah as you're approaching your bike it, it, geo geolocation comes in unlocks unlocks your bike what and then your bike lock just falls off onto the street and gets <laughs> <a> scratched <laughs> talking of locks I, I need to say this talking of locks uh, my friend's getting married tomorrow and we went to pick up a rolls royce ghost for his wedding yesterday and the, the car is immaculate it's a beautiful car everybody who knows rolls royce or may have ever seen a rolls royce knows it's a beautiful car Silver Ghost, yeah? Um, it was black, actually. Black Ghost. No, no, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I knew what you meant. I didn't. I'm not sure. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the most famous Rolls-Royce pretty much is a Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost. It, it, the, the model was called a Silver Ghost, even if it's uh, it's produced in a variety of colours. That's why I was asking. Sorry. I'm a car nerd. I can't help it. So um, where was it going? So underneath the actual handle, uh, door handle of the car, they've actually put in a, a key lock. To, to stick your key in and uh, the car itself is black but the key lock is silver and it looks like literally a door lock on an internal door in your house so i'll just <laughs> like a yale yeah it, it literally looks like a yale lock without the word <laughs> yale on it it's just horrendous that they, they do something like that to such a beautiful car uh, but that's not my recommendation my recommendation is kryptonite crypto lock mini to be honest that's why that's that's why i didn't buy the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the well you were ones. around when it came out originally right i was yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was made out of wood <laughs> well they do like I, one thing that, that's funny about that is i i know a few people who've been to weddings in these in these cars like ladies in particular who've arrived in these cars and they can barely walk by the time they get out of them because although they're beautiful the suspension is made of sort of pig iron and wood um so mm. you're sitting on what's basically a wooden bench uh going across modern pothole filled roads so by the time you get there you can barely walk down the aisle so it looks good but extremely painful. Um, Will, did you want to go next with yours? Yeah, uh, so a new horror film I'm going to talk about called Host. 
So it's interesting because it's conceived and shot entirely during lockdown using Zoom. Uh, it's interesting because the fact that the movie's actually good and it, the mechanism and circumstances and context behind the film. So it's done by a guy, Rod, Rob Savage. So it, apparently he's a good name in, in, in the horror film world. And I was intrigued about how this would work and, so, and seems to be the next step. Blair Witch, remember Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity? That kind of concept where it was shot with portable cameras. Yeah, yeah, and lo- low budget, one location, but really compelling plot. Yeah, yeah, both were good. Although Blair Witch Project was 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 massively massively hyped. It's available on to stream on an app called Shudder, <laughs> which I've never <laughs> I've never heard of. How did you find this, Will? What were you googling? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Go to back to horror films, please. Which is the streaming service for horror films. Uh, there is an app, and under the hood, it uses um, AMC networks. AMC networks, uh, American cable television, AMC, BBC America, um, Sundance TV. Uh, you know, there's a whole a whole raft of things that it, it delivers content for. So I played it. You put, I played it through Amazon TV. You, you you search for the movie host. You click on it, and then it launches the Shudder app behind the scenes, registers you on a seven-day free free trial. does prompt you first whether you want to do that or not. Um, But it's pretty seamless. It's quite cool. The film's only 55 minutes long, 6.7 on IMDb, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes on the Tomatoometer, which which for me was rubbish. The DDK-ometer, I'd give it about... 6.5, 6.5, I'd say, pretty much the same as, as IMDb. If you've seen Paranormal Activity, exactly the same formula, but it's on Zoom. But it's definitely worth watch. Some good scares. My wife was behind the pillow a lot. And good intro to some young Brit- first-time British actors. It's Also, it's interesting in how they rehearsed it as well, because they all had to re- rehearse in isolation as well. Mm, yeah. It's interesting. Definitely, definitely recommended. So my recommendation this week is The Umbrella Academy. I don't know whether you guys have uh, uh, seen yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so have you watched it, Will? You're going, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched the first round. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay, cool. So season two's just launched, which I haven't watched yet, so I can't recommend season two. But I watched the first few episodes ages ago when it first came out, and then I, I stopped watching it for whatever reason. I think I got distracted by something shiny. <laughs> It's really good. So the first season I've just finished. I'm about three or four episodes into the second season, which completely shakes stuff up. Yeah, it's really good. It's very weird. It's very odd. It's based on a a graphic novel, which I haven't read, uh, but I think I might now, although I think it's quite different from the series. And the premise is pretty much what if X-Men, but Charles Xavier was a dickhead. So it's a billionaire philanthropist guy who goes around collecting up these kids who've got superpowers who were all born at the same instant on the same day to women who were not pregnant. uh, And they were just suddenly pregnant and gave birth these these children and he goes around and manages to collect seven of them and they've all got weird superpowers that are very not your standard superpowers apart from one of them who's super strong but they've all got very different abilities like one girl in particular can mind control people but only if she starts her sentence i heard a rumor so she has to say i heard a rumor that and then whatever she wants and people will go and do it how she found that out, I have no idea. There's one scene where she's a four-year-old and she does it. And I'm like, how did you work that out at four that you had to say? <laughs> anyway. What's the diversity ratio of these <laughs> seven heroes? Are they from all over the world? Yeah, they are. So one's Russian, one's... His name's Diego. I think he's supposed to be from one one of the Latin American kind of countries or whatever. One's, one's a, an anthropomorphic chimp. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's all pretty odd. But yeah, no, they they are quite diverse. Um, one is um, it becomes quite interesting actually because there's a few sort of time traveling elements and things like that involved. And at one point. I won't spoil too much stuff, but some characters end up going back in time because one of them's black hmm. and they go back to the 60s. A lot of the implications of that are explored and those sorts of things. But uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really good. It's very well acted. There's a good cast. Uh, one of them actually went yeah. to university with my wife, Tom Hopper, um, the guy who wow. plays Luther in it, bizarrely. <laughs> so that was quite odd for her when she walked in the room and was like, oh, it's him. He's a dickhead. <laughs> I was like, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was her, her, her take on it. But um, no, it's really good. I, I'd recommend it. I think it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, it's not your standard superhero comic book thing. Um, so mm. yeah, give it a go. I think, chaps, that is the show. So Jatinda, do you want to let everyone know where they can get hold of us? Yep, please feel free to contact us via ddkpod at ddklimited.com. So that's limited uh, written in full form. Or you can tweet us at ddklimited, again, limited in full form. Or you can find us on LinkedIn as Dalton Day Condola. Just remains for us to say thanks very much for listening, guys. And uh, we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap.